You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Throughout my 16 years or so of pastoral ministry, I frequently encounter people who consider themselves Christians and identify by that language, but have no substantial fellowship in the life of a local church. Now, I don't want to put the blame on those folks, because they don't know better. The blame is somewhere else, probably with us, for somehow perpetuating a version of Christianity that does not involve vital connection to the body of Christian brothers and sisters. These phenomenon, this phenomenon comes up in different ways. Sometimes it comes up in evangelistic contexts. I've had a variety of occasions where I've been chatting with someone and we've been able to kind of move the conversation towards talking about Jesus and uh, maybe this person has a testimony of some sort and maybe they prayed to receive Christ and then uh, frequently I'll ask a sort of a follow-up question, you know, well, what church are you connected with? And, and, and how is the body of Christ kind of building you and strengthening you up? And, and, and the response is this. And there's that kind of awkward silence there, and it's, oh, well, it's that church over, and I can't remember the pastor's name or the name of the church, but, and clearly there's a really deep thing happening, you know? And so it just, over and over again, it becomes more and more apparent to me in this way. Sometimes it's more tragic. There have been instances where uh, I've been called upon to be in ministry with a family after the death of a loved one. And one of the first questions I'll ask in that context is whether that person was connected with the church so that I know if I'm kind of, you know, the, the, the first chair preacher or if I need to step back and take a supporting role. And there have been multiple times in settings like that where they say, no, 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 this, this person didn't have a church. But, you know, he or she was a Christian. And so again, we've kind of taken like Christianity and church and put some distance between them somehow. I don't know altogether how we've gotten to that point. I have some guesses. That's not the goal today. What I want us to begin to see is that the New Testament, and especially 1 John, assumes all the way through that believers are planted in churches. There's no place in the entire New Testament where you find a solo Christian. There's no place in the Bible where you find a Lone Ranger Christian, where it's me and Jesus, and we got our own thing going, and I love Jesus, and He loves me, and the church is kind of just details or secondary. For John, believing that Jesus is the Christ and being born of God, we're going to talk a lot more about that in just a second, means that there's love for others involved in this. Being born of God, John says, means that you love the parent, and in that instance he's talking about God, and you love the child. Jesus, the Son of God, and by extension the church, the children of God. Right, so love for God extends to love for the family of God. 
Being reconciled to God implies, comes with a consequence, that we're reconciled to the entire family of God, all those who've been redeemed. You see this all through the New Testament. You especially see it in 1 John, who is constantly, just again and again and again, he's talking about how crucial it is to love the brothers and sisters. It's been kind of a recurring thing. You've probably thought, are all of these sermons on loving the brothers and sisters? But John just kind of thinks in this recurring, he's got these three or four themes, and they come back around every other chapter or so. And, and so this is the thing that's going here. He's going to talk about people being born of God, and he's going to talk about the family of God, and he takes it as an assumption that those two things go together for John, the new birth comes with a new family. For John and for us, the new birth comes with a new family. Now what do we mean when we talk about the new birth? What do we mean when we talk about being born of God? In chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. John doesn't go into detail here about what he means about being born of God, but he takes it as an assumption that the people he's addressing to, if they believe in Jesus, then they've been born of God. And we want to dig in kind of more deeply because this is a theme that shows up in a variety of texts in John's literature. So whether it's the letters of John or the gospel of John, uh, it's the same sort of idea that we find in John chapter 3, very famous text where Jesus talks about the necessity of being born again or being born from above to see the kingdom of God. Remember Nicodemus comes, it's the middle of the night, kind of it's dark out there. It's always, uh, preachers like to joke about how he came at night to find the light of the world. And John's playing with those images, isn't he? But here's a teacher of Israel who comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness because he doesn't want his friends to know he's coming to Jesus for help. And Jesus tells him that you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And a few verses later, he says you must be born again. This is a necessary requirement. You must be born again. And Nicodemus is confused. I mean, he knows about physical birth. He knows he's got a mama. And Jesus says, there's an analogy going on here, right? We, we know about physical birth, but there's another kind of birth. It's a spiritual reality that has to take place. It's the consequence or the result of the work of God's Spirit who moves, and it's mysterious, and it's miraculous, but it's grace. And Jesus says, you know, flesh gives birth, birth to flesh. That's the relationship with your mother. <laughs> but you need to be born of the Spirit. That's what God does. And so John has got plenty of reflection, whether it's Gospels of John or the letters of John, about this thing we call the new birth. I was uh, having some conversation with a friend this week who teaches, uh, he's taught in some seminaries and he's a professor of Wesley studies. And uh, he was telling me and a few other folks about how in one of our United Methodist Seminaries in which he used to teach, when he would teach classes on John Wesley's theology, 
And he would get to the part of Wesley's theology where he talked about the new birth, which was a massive, massive, massive emphasis for John Wesley, our forebear, the founder of the Wesleyan tradition in which we find ourselves. He said we'd have students who would come to the United Methodist Seminary who had never in their lives heard of being born again. In our nation's capital, in Washington, D.C., seminary students who would come who had never in their lives heard about the new birth. Folks who were getting ready to go into ordained ministry who had never in their lives heard Jesus say, you must be born again. And so this week, with that kind of conversation in the background, I started working on this sermon and I, it's just, there it is, right there. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The new birth is here. And so, with all of that in the background, and I'm confident that you all are familiar with the language of being born again, but we're going to take a few minutes and just kind of deep dive in and have some refresher time on what does the Bible mean when it talks about the new birth? This miraculous change that God works in our souls to bring us from spiritual death to spiritual life. First question is, and this was the first question Wesley asked when he preached on the new birth from John 3, is why? Like, why do we need to be born again? Why do we need this miraculous spiritual experience that happens in each of us? Why do we need that? In the way Wesley told the stories, he went back to Genesis. And we frequently go back to Genesis because if you want to understand the story, you need to start at the beginning, right? And the beginning of the story is that God made human beings and He made human beings in His image and endowed human, us with dignity and, 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 and made us objects of His love and His kindness and His benefaction and, and has entrusted the world to us, creatures made in His image of God and has... And has, and has Given us everything. He says to Adam, look at all the things you see. The plants and the animals and all of it. I'm giving it to you and I want you to care for it. I want you to cultivate. I want you to expand the garden. Have dominion. Take this little spot of land that I've given you in the garden and, and make it grow and take the world out there. It's crazy. Make it beautiful and, and, and take care of it. There's one thing God said, and this is a reminder that you're not God. Anybody need that reminder from time to time? <laughs> Don't raise your hand. <laughs> just, just, you're not. Adam needed that reminder too, and that reminder came in the form of a tree in the middle of the garden. You got a lot of authority in this world, Adam, but not absolute authority. You've got a lot of authority in this world, Adam, but it doesn't find its source in you. It finds its source in me. And there's one tree right here in the middle that will stand as a testimony to the reality that God is God and God calls the shots. And that all of the authority and all of the dignity that we have is derived from Him. We don't create that ourselves. And so we kind of, like, we struggle to understand that whole tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And why is God so just uptight about that apple or whatever it was? Why is he such a stickler for the rules? And it's like, none of that's the point. 
This is about God entrusting the world to, you know, here's one thing God said, one tree I'll keep for myself, God says, and the million you see out there, you can have those, and we think God's a stickler for the rules. This is a reminder that God is God, that He calls the shots, that He creates boundaries, and His boundaries are good for us and healthy. And Adam transgresses. God had told him the consequence of transgressing, the consequence of stepping across the good boundary that God had created would be death. Nevertheless, that's what he did. He took the fruit and he ate it. He succumbed to temptation. He didn't persevere in obedience. The consequence, God had told him, if you eat the fruit, is that you will what? Die. So what does that mean? I think that operates on two levels. It operates on a level of physical death. Adam didn't die physically immediately, but very shortly thereafter, one of his sons killed another of his sons. And you see how this poison began to work its way into Adam's descendants, into his family, into all to whom he is a father. For Adam, though, it's not merely physical death. There is a spiritual death that occurs, isn't there? Almost immediately, not almost, immediately, there is distance between him and God. Relational distance between him and God. He's ashamed. He's guilty. He experiences the shame that comes with that, the sense of condemnation, the desire to, to run from God, to hide from God. You ever felt like you needed to hide from God? Felt like God was, God's going to be looking for me. I've disobeyed Him. And now we can't just stand one another, before one another with full trust and full all just, just full self-giving love because there's distance and there's brokenness and there's rebellion and there's transgression. And that distance, that shame, is an experience of spiritual death, isn't it? Like in that moment, God said, if you eat of it, you'll die. Adam eats of it. He doesn't immediately die physically, but he does immediately die spiritually. Because he's cut himself off from the one who breathed breath into his lungs to give him life. He's cut himself off from the one who gives life and who sustains life. And when you cut, your, when you cut yourself off from the one who gives life, what's the only option? Death. So immediately, in that moment, in Genesis 3, Adam dies spiritually. And as we said a few moments ago, like that condition doesn't stop with him, does it? It just keeps on going into his children, into the rest of the human race. And it goes quickly and it goes broadly until very shortly thereafter that one guy's bragging about how many people he what? Killed? And you see how when human beings step away from God's best, death and destruction become the norm, and it's a mess. 
and it's painful, and it's grievous. And no one is exempt from that broken world. Like we all come into that broken world with broken souls. So we need to be born again because somehow we participate in Adam's spiritual death. Everyone who is born, everybody been, you can raise your hand on this one. Have you been born? Only three of you. All right, a few more. All right. We've been born. Everyone who has been born participates in Adam's spiritual death. Now, theologians have tried to figure that out over centuries. And if you're interested in that, I can share some books with you. <laughs> if you're not, just let's, I think we know this experientially, don't we? We know what it feels like to participate in Adam's spiritual death. We know what it feels like. to choose sin. We know that thing inside of us where we like we know what we ought to do and then but we still get pulled back the other way and there's this there's this this principle or this pressure or this force or this law that drives us away from God and that is part of our participation in Adam's spiritual death. You've experienced that, haven't you? Why do we need it to be born again? Because we're part of the human race, and the human race as a whole comes into the world spiritually dead. No exceptions. I don't care if you grew up in church. You come into the world spiritually dead. Some people's deadness is harder to identify than others <laughs> because they're generally polite southern gentlemen or southern bells. They don't treat you bad, at least not to your face. <laughs> and we think, well, you know, surely that person can't be spiritually dead. They're too kind. Or they just, they're just a gentleman or Something like that. We, we tend to make excuses for ourselves sometimes. I've been in church contexts where when we start talking about the fact that we come into the world spiritually dead, like people literally got offended that we thought like Christians think babies are sinners. I think it's self-evident. Self-evident. <laughs> Seems thoroughly uncontroversial to me, but hey, that's where it went. Why do we need to be born again? Why does Jesus say you must be born again? Because we all, all of us, come into the world spiritually dead. It's not mean to name reality. It's not lacking in grace. In fact, it's a means of grace. For us 
to recognize and confess that God is true and that we need Him to bring us from death to life is an experience of His grace. I needed someone to tell me, (laughs) you need to be born again. All of us do. All of us do. So we need it because we come into the world spiritually dead. What is it? What is the new birth? The new birth is the work of the Spirit of God to bring people who participate in Adam's spiritual death into a new experience of spiritual life and vitality. Think about it this way. Again, this is a, an analogy that Wesley used when he preached on the new birth. He said, think about it this way. Think about a baby in the womb. Baby's got eyes, but can't see. Ears, and can maybe hear some things, but the sounds are muffled. Ears aren't working. They're not fully developed. They're not fully functioning. Right? Our, the senses of a child pre-birth, right? you have eyes, nose, ears, mouth, but, the, but the, the sensibilities are not fully developed, are they? And they don't become fully developed until the child is born and clearly hears her mother's voice for the first time or tastes food for the first time. How crucial is it for lungs that, for, for, for a preborn child that they're, they're developed, but they haven't been filled with air yet? And so Wesley says it's kind of like this, right? Before we meet Jesus, before the Spirit does this stunning new birth, like we've got eyes, but our spiritual senses are dark. We don't see things the way God sees them. We have ears, but our spiritual senses are dumb, like, or. Deaf, that's the word, yeah. Our spiritual senses are deaf. We, we, we don't hear things the way God hears them. We, we don't perceive the world the way God perceives the world. Our values are distant from His. Our spiritual sensibilities are darkened, even dead. And so the new birth is about being brought from that place of deadness, inability to life. It's about being insensitive to the things of God to, become, to being made miraculously by the work of the Holy Spirit sensitive to the things of God. It's not a transition that any of us has the power to work in ourselves. Why is that? Because dead people can't do things. <laughs> Only God can give life to the dead. We don't know the ins and outs. God has not seen fit to reveal the particular mechanism or any sort of the, the, the process to us. Jesus says the Spirit moves as the Spirit wills. This is the work of God. We are told that this work comes on the condition of faith in Jesus. It's when the Gospel is preached that Christ has died 
for our sins, that Christ has been raised, that He now reigns at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and calls all of us and every person to trusting, believing, faithful obedience when that gospel is proclaimed, the gospel that declares the perfect love of Jesus revealed in His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection. The Spirit of God works to call forth faith, trust, not just sort of an intellectual belief, but a posture of self-giving. Like, I belong to Him. He has my allegiance. He has my faith. I trust Him. There's, I need Him to do something for me I can't do for myself. I can't give myself new life. I need Jesus to do that for me. Faith isn't sort of pulling myself up by my own strength. saying I'm believing hard enough. It's saying, I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes. Only Jesus can do it. It's helpful as well to think of this in terms of other aspects of our salvation. We talk about salvation a lot in terms of forgiveness, don't we? That God justifies us. Wesley said, here's a helpful distinction. Justification, God saying you are forgiven, right, is something He does for us. Forgiveness itself doesn't offer an inward change. It's an objective reality that God declares. But Wesley says that's only part of the story. We have the new birth, which is itself an inward change. So God's forgiveness is what He does for us. The new birth is what He does in us. We need God to do something for us, but that's not all we need. We also need Him to do something in us. We need Him to bring us from spiritual life to spirit, spiritual death to spiritual life. We need Him to give us the new birth. When we have this experience, we... Feel the presence of God in a way we have not felt it before. It's not just a truth that's out there. It's a reality that's in here. And uh, I've mentioned Wesley a lot this morning, but I want to give you one more extended quote that is immensely, immensely helpful. What is the nature of the new earth, Mr. Wesley? He said it's this. It is that great change which God works in the soul when He brings it to life. When He raises it from the death of sin to the life of righteousness. It is the change wrought in the whole soul by the Almighty Spirit of God when it is created anew in Christ Jesus. When it is renewed after the image of God in righteousness and true holiness. When the love of the world is changed into the love of God. Does that sound like 1 John? When the love of the world is changed into the love of God, pride into humility, passion into meekness, hatred, envy, malice into sincere, 
tender, disinterested love for all mankind. In a word, Wesley says, it is that change whereby the early sensual devilish mind is turned into the mind which was in Christ Jesus. This is the nature of the new birth. So is everyone. He quotes scripture. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. Now, different people experience the new birth in different ways. Some people have Apostle Paul-style Damascus Road conversions. Life is clearly heading in a very, very wrong direction, marked by rebellion against God. And at some point in that place, the Spirit of God shows up, and it's powerful, and it's distinct, and it's obvious, and there is an immediate change. Maybe you have a testimony like that. Maybe you know people who have a testimony like that. We sometimes take testimonies like that and hold them up as the standard. The reality is that there are a variety of other ways I mean, that people come to the new birth. And not everyone remembers <laughs> that moment. I don't remember the moment of being born again. Oftentimes, children will grow up in a church family. They will be nurtured. They will be catechized. They will memorize the scriptures and they will memorize the songs of the faith and those songs and the truth will work its way into their little hearts and over time they grow up into Christ. It's crucial and this is my experience it's crucial to know like I didn't come into the world a Christian <laughs> I didn't come into the world not needing to be born again. I don't remember the moment that the Spirit brought me to new life, but I know that I needed it and that He has. And that's why we talk about the marks or characteristics of the new birth. Does God's Spirit testify with us, with our spirit, that we're his children, that we've been brought into his family? Do we have spiritual senses that are governed by the values of God revealed in Scripture? Are we attentive to the passions of God? To the things that he cares about? Does the gospel drive us, or is it details? Does the mission drive us? Does the desire to see others brought into the family of God, others to see the kingdom of God, does that drive us the way it drove Jesus to lay down His life? And so we're in a position to do some diagnostic work. First John is all about diagnostic work for believers. Like you say you're a believer, 
Here's what the life of a believer looks like. And it's marked by love for the parent, love for the child, love for God, love for Jesus, love for the brothers and sisters. And it's marked by a deep commitment to the Gospel. It's marked by a deep commitment to the Messiah. And it's marked by growth. Growing and growing and growing and growing. Now, sometimes growth doesn't feel like growth. Sometimes growth feels like a desert. Nevertheless, in those moments, in those seasons, the Spirit of God is faithful and working. The point is, whether we are born again with a flash of heavenly revelation, or whether we see the means of grace and the evidence of God's grace early in life over time, it doesn't change the fact that all of us must be born again. All of us. And those who have been born again, like children who are born physically, ought to mature into adults. Those who have been born of the Spirit ought to mature into Christ. So we don't get born again and, well, that was great. Glad I got that over with. Check that box. Let's get on with life and do what I want to do. That, friends, is where the new birth and the family of God get separated. Somehow, and we need to repent of this and change our behavior, somehow the church has sent the message, you can pray the prayer and get born again and never change and never have any ongoing transformation of your life. Somehow we've let people think that's a valid form of Christianity and we need to repent and stop it. Because the new birth comes with a new family. <laughs> All through this, John's point is that if you've been born in, again, you've been born into God's family. He uses familial language. You've got parents, you've got children, you've got brothers, you've got sisters, and you are with them, and you're a part of that community, and your communal life is marked by love, and that love involves encouragement, and it also involves accountability. All that stuff towards the end where John starts talking about, you know, if you see a brother or sister committing what is not a mortal sin, and John seems to think that there are levels of sin here. That language of mortal sin confuses interpreters. <laughs> uh, we kind of struggle with what, like, how do we classify that? I think what he's dealing with is, remember, you've got that group of folks who have gone out from them. I think that in going out, He's considering that rejection of Jesus as the Messiah is that really grave sin unto death that I think John has in mind here. But if you see a brother or sister committing sin, his response is, like, you care for them, and you love them, and you draw them back in, and you hold on to them, and you exhort them, and you may need to say, hey, I see a red flag in your life, and I want... I want to see you walking with Jesus in vitality, and that's difficult. It only happens when there's a lot of trust. 
And that trust is cultivated in Christian fellowship. But the new birth comes with a new family. And families are messy sometimes, amen? (laughs) But that doesn't mean we give up on it, and it doesn't mean it's not necessary. And so we try to build family gatherings into the life of the church for accountability. Did you notice the last sentence in the whole sermon? It's really more of a sermon than a letter, isn't it? Keep yourselves from idols. John wants to see this congregation caring for one another in ways that they avoid idolatry, the worship of anything other than the God who made them and loves them and who has given them the new birth. And that they care for each other and keep each other on that path. And so the church historically, it said, how do we do that? Well, let's build this into the life of the community. And we've tried to do that here. And we're going to keep working on it until we do it effectively for the long haul. It's the sort of thing you don't just do it and then you're done. You have to like work on it for a long term. And so some of you are in band meetings, aren't you? Uh, three, four, five folks who gather a week, every other week. Say, how is it with your soul? How can we pray for you? Those are places where you're building the kind of trust that you need to be able to really shepherd one another in love. It's the kind of thing that can only happen in that setting. Uh, and some, some, some folks are in that. If you're not in it yet and would like to be, all you got to do is grab me uh, or one of our, our staff persons and say, hey, I want to be involved in that. Can you help me? And, and the answer is yes, we can. We have our adult education, Sunday school, Wednesday night kinds of things where, again, the trust level isn't quite as deep. But it's a place where we're being formed in Scripture, we're formed in the beliefs of the Christian church, what it, our history, what it means to be a part of the life of the people of God over time, and the practices that inform us, the practices that shape us. So you got really small groups, you got kind of medium-sized groups, and then you got this group, <laughs> Sunday Fellowship. And all of those are about cultivating family life. And all of us are responsible for cultivating that family life. But I'm going to say this, and it might be a little bit uncomfortable. The longer you've been here, the more responsible you are for cultivating that family life. The longer you've been here, the more responsible you are for cultivating the family life and the harder it is. Because the longer we're in a group, whether it's the church, whether it's a place where we work, right? Maybe you've had this experience at work. You came in in one year and maybe two or three other people came in six months aside of you and you're all new together, right? And you form a common bond with people who are new with you, don't you? And uh, you're kind of learning the ropes at the same time. And over time, you're not new anymore. And there's some other new people. But you're, you still got those bonds with the people who were new with you at your workplace. And you don't have the same bonds with the new people who are new a few years after you. They may have those bonds with some people who are new with them. And even though you've been there longer, you don't necessarily take it upon yourself to be responsible for helping those folks to fit in the same way 
But aren't you? Because you know the ropes. You know the place. You know the culture. You know the ins and outs. Churches work a lot of the same way. It's very easy to kind of slide into our groups. Well, I'm on this ministry team, or I'm on this committee, or I'm in this Sunday school class, or I'm in this band meeting. And we've been doing this together for 20 years, and it's us. And yeah, I know there's some new faces around, but I don't really know them, and I'm not really sure how to talk to them. And I think it's great that people are around, but I'm not really sure what to do about that. It's time to figure it out. The longer you've been here, the more responsible you are for finding those who are new to the family and helping them fit in the family. Right? It's the parents who make space for their children. It's the folks who have been long established who make space for new members of the family. Because when you're new to the room, you're not in control. You don't have the advantage. You can't just walk up knowing everybody's name or even where the bathroom is. Somebody's got to say, hey, I've been here for 20 years and you can sit next to me. It's not reserved. It's easy to slide into the, just the regular rhythms. I walk in the door and I see somebody that I know and I've known them for a long time and I go there. When I was in high school, my best friend was president of our youth group. We had a president for a few years. And this guy, his name is John, when he was president, so we were like juniors or seniors, when we walked in on a Wednesday or a Sunday, he started looking for the new faces the moment he walked in the door. So maybe, and I remember distinctly, several times. I mean, this guy grew up in this church. He'd been there all his life. He played hide and seek in the dark, in the sanctuary, probably when we weren't supposed to. Like, we know the rhythms of the place. And he could have fit in his clique easily and not worried about everything else. But when we walked in the door as a leader who'd been there all his life, even if we were only teenagers, all his life, Hey, O'Reilly, come with me. Let's go talk to this guy. Hey, there's somebody who hasn't been here before. Let's invite him to sit with us. You don't have a family until you're doing that kind of stuff. The new birth requires it. It comes with it. And if you want a healthy church, if you want a growing church, if you want a church where people show up and their lives are changed because the power of the Spirit of God is palpable, that's the only way to do it. It is the only way. Just acknowledge, I have blinders on. And I'm going to take them off. And I'm going to care for people who I've only just met. Like their family. Because they are and I want them to be. 
John says, this is the testimony of the Son of God, of Jesus, eternal life. You may have noticed this kind of peculiar language about uh, the three that testify, the water and the blood and the Spirit. Water was a common way of talking about physical birth in the ancient world and Jewish culture. John has in mind the testimony of Jesus' birth. He's got a mama. He's one of us. He's walked in our shoes. The testimony of his blood, which was shed for us to give us new life. And the testimony of the Spirit of God, who is present, bringing us into that new experience of life. In the Jewish world, you needed at least two witnesses for a legit court case. Jesus has three the saving significance of his whole life from birth to death and resurrection and the presence of the Spirit of God. Jesus can literally say, God is my witness. Because the Spirit testifies to the fact that Jesus brings eternal life. But we have got to understand, and not just understand, but embrace the vocation that if the world is going to experience that new life, that new birth, that rich vitality, Jesus, for some reason, has entrusted that mission to us, to you, and to me. And that means the people sitting next to you are folks who have got to be cultivated in the family with a view to reaching new members for the family. Not because we want our numbers at the end of the year to be over the top and really great. Because every person that walks through the door represents a person who either has or needs to be brought from death to life. That is the only thing that matters, brothers and sisters. It is the only thing that matters. At the risk of oversimplification, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are two kinds of people in the room. Those who have been born again and those who have not. If you have, the goal is maturity. Just like with your children or your grandchildren. You want to see them learn to read and you want to see them learn to be proficient and you want to see them grow into mature, healthy adults, so it is with those born of the Spirit. We want to see you and me grow into mature, healthy, grown-up followers of Jesus. But maybe somehow you've managed to find your way in here and you heard all this talk about being born again and death and life and you're like, I don't know. I don't know if I've experienced that. Several years ago, I was leading a lay speaker training. It was a level two lay speaker training, which means all the people who were on lay speaker who were doing it had been through level one. So they'd been through some basic classes. This was a second level class on how to share your, how to be, how to be an evangelist. And one of the assignments for the class was uh, to give your testimony and to make your testimony a vehicle for the gospel because we don't need to confuse our testimony with Jesus' good news. My story is not the same as Jesus' story, 
but I want my story to be a vehicle for his story so that when I, I can talk about his work in my life. So there are about six, seven, eight, maybe eight people in this seminar, and we're kind of going around. It was a Friday night and all day Saturday, and we talked about how to share your story and how to clearly articulate the gospel as part of your story. Uh, and then they were supposed to go home that night and kind of put that together in a couple of minutes. It'll take all day. Just you want to clearly articulate this. And the next day we were going to go around and, and do it and, and, and share our stories. Remember, everyone had been, had, had, was a member of a church, had been affirmed by the church leadership for lay speaker training, had been through a basic course and was now in an advanced second level course. We get back the next day and a guy named Mike showed up. Some of you have met Mike because he's been to some of the events we've held here, Reignite Science and Faith Conferences. Mike showed up. And we started going around the room, and people started telling their stories, and their lovely stories. And Mike, his turn came up, and he said, and to this day, I am amazed. He said, I'm not sure I have a story. been in church all my life. I'm on the trustees. I've been affirmed by my staff parish relations committee to go and fill pulpits when preachers go on vacation. I don't know that I know Jesus. Number one, what kind of courage does that take? Most of us would have made something up. In that moment, a man who had been in church and served in leadership for years experienced the new birth. I'm not saying that's the case for everybody. I think most of us grow up and we learn to walk with Jesus. But it absolutely means don't take it for granted. And it absolutely means that you can walk through these doors for decades and not know Jesus. And so the invitation for those of you who do know him is to be in prayer for those who may not. And dear friends, You need to meet the Lord. His arms are open wide. And he longs to bring you from death to life. He longs, he longs, he longs to take you into his arms. He longs to bring you into his family. He longs to fill you with all of his grace and his goodness and his glory. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.